Howdy! Before we start today, a quick tip of the hat to Land of Lammy for getting out there and putting a review on iTunes. Thank you so much. He said, These guys know their onions. Well-researched and well-produced. I highly recommend it. Five stars. I like onions. Onions are delicious. I like them grilled. I like them sautéed. So I just like plain old onions on stuff. This is a delicious spe- vegetable. I, I especially like the, was it the 1015 The 1015. Invented by uh, Texas A&M researchers University. at Texas A&M University. Yeah, so, there you go. Best onion in the world, people. Yeah. Well, hey, you're going to you're gonna get some race and mire with the people from Noonday with their Noonday onions out here. Uh, <laughs> all right. Were they invented by Aggies? No. <laughs> okay. I'm not going to start a crazy onion controversy. <laughs> but what I am going to do is start the episode. Tell people about the show, and if you want to support us financially, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash texaspodcast. Thanks for listening, and without further ado, here's the show. Spoiler, he died. Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. Mirabeau Lamar is one of the great enigmas of Texas history. He is mostly known as the implacable opponent of Sam Houston. He was the third president of Texas, and his policies and actions were a disaster for the young republic. But he's also remembered for his forward-thinking vision of an educated Texas. But who was the real Mirabeau Lamar? But first... Who's your favorite Texas classic rock jock? Well, I'm going to stick with uh, my roots and my childhood in the Houston area, and I'm going to pick John Lander of Zoo in the Morning on 93Q back in the 80s. Nice. I'm going to take it back to Houston as well. And uh, some of my early favorite listening guys was Stevens and Pruitt, the classic Stevens and Pruitt, icons of Texas radio. They are an institution. Uncle Waldo. Um, well, my favorite is, uh, as much as I love Russ Martin, I'm going to go back to Dallas to a little bit earlier than that, and I'm going to say, from Q102 in Dallas, Redbeard. Redbeard, brother. Mirabeau Bonaparte Lamar was born in Louisville, Georgia, in 1798 to John and Rebecca Lamar. He grew up on his father's plantation, was highly educated and cultured, even for a member of the Southern Planter class. He was a bright and active young man who excelled at both horsemanship and the arts. A voracious reader, Lamar also showed considerable skill as a poet. As a young man, he dabbled in commerce, publishing, and politics. He married Tabitha Jordan in 1826. They had one surviving child, a daughter named Rebecca, but Tabitha was chronically ill with tuberculosis throughout their marriage. He served as a state senator for a year before her death in childbirth in 1830, which broke his heart and kept him out of the public eye for a time. His infant son, John, died during this time in 1831. In 1832, and again in 1833, he tried to run for Congress, running on a nullification platform in opposition to federal power. In 1834, tragedy again struck Lamar. His older brother, Lucius, was a noted judge and lawyer in Georgia. Lucius recently learned that a condemned man had confessed to the murder of a local minister's sister-in-law. Lucius had previously sentenced another man to death for the crime, though, the minister himself. Despondent over his unintentional role in this miscarriage of justice, he committed suicide. 
Mirabeau, who idolized his brother, was once again devastated. His father and sister had both died shortly before Lucius's death. This was the last straw for Lamar in Georgia. He gave up on politics, law, and business there, and like so many men of his days, he looked for a new start in the West. Lamar was friendly with James Fannin, who'd gone to Texas in 1834, and after selling his interest in a newspaper, he followed Fannin to Texas. Lamar arrived in the late summer of 1835. Texas suited his health and his spirits. He decided to move his family there and returned to Georgia to settle his affairs. Lamar also made clear his support for the pro-independence War Party of Texas and even penned several poems in support of a free Texas republic. Lamar was in Georgia when he learned of the fall of the Alamo and the fate of his friend Fannin. Spoiler, he died. He rushed back to Texas and joined General Sam Houston's army on the Brazos at Grosch's plantation as a private in the cavalry. He quickly became part of the faction of the army that wanted to stand and fight Santa Ana's advancing force. On April 20th, the day before the Battle of San Jacinto, he was part of the cavalry skirmish impulsively initiated by Sidney Sherman. Lamar's quick thinking and fighting skill helped extricate the Texian cavalry and save the life of Secretary of War Thomas Rusk. He even earned cheers of respect from the Mexican line. Houston promoted Lamar on the spot to colonel in charge of the cavalry, replacing Sherman in recognition of his gallantry. During the battle itself, Houston placed Lamar's cavalry on the right, screening his force from possible reinforcements and cutting off the enemy's retreat. After the battle, Lamar's star continued to rise. When Houston left the army to go to New Orleans for medical treatment for his wounded ankle, Russ became the new commander of the army. Interim President David Burnett appointed Lamar Secretary of War. A few weeks later, when Rusk left the army, Lamar was made a major general and commander of the army. Only a month before, he had been a private. It's a pretty fast track from the bottom to the top. Yeah. Um, now, Lamar only stayed in the army a little while longer. Most of the troops at this point were latecomers from the United States, not even veterans of San Jacinto. They were unruly and spoiling for a fight, even threatening to depose Burnett's government. Rusk and Houston's timely arrival saved the situation, but by then the new nation's attention was firmly on its first presidential election. Lamar, who remained a popular war hero, was elected vice president, while Houston, of course, became the first elected president. In the Texas Constitution, the two offices, of course, were elected separately, and in fact, very quickly these two men would find themselves in almost constant opposition. It's not like the United States election where the president and the vice president are elected together as a ticket. Houston saw his primary role as president to keep war from breaking out again with Mexico, which had refused to recognize Texas independence. Lamar, of course, disagreed and favored a strong stance against Mexico. The Texans had beaten Mexico before, and they surely could do it again. Lamar had pushed to execute Santa Ana as a murderer, but Houston had honored the agreement to allow Santa Ana to go to the United States. Houston wanted peaceful relations with the Indians, but Lamar hated them and wanted to push them out of Texas. Houston pushed for annexation with the United States, while Lamar favored retaining Texas independence. Houston was bold, outgoing, and flashy, while Lamar was quiet and sensitive. Houston liked dogs. Lamar liked cats. Tastes great, less filling. Coke, Pepsi. Look, here's the thing. These guys... Don't see eye to eye on anything. What's Houston for? Never mind. I don't care. I'm against it. I'm against it. What that man's for, I stand against. And what he's against, I stand for. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, Lamar had little to do as vice president. Houston didn't like or trust him with any duties. And there was 
not very much for him to do constitutionally. He did go to the United States to visit family, and, me, and he promoted immigration to the New Republic. Other than that, he had plenty of leisure time. He continued to collect historical documents about Texas and Mexico. He founded the Philosophical Society of Texas, and he learned Spanish. In 1838, though, the anti-Houstonites began campaigning for him in the upcoming presidential election. Since there were no consecutive terms allowed in the Texas Constitution, Houston could not run for re-election. Houston's picked candidates, Peter Grayson and James Collinsworth, who we talked about before, both died on the eve of the election, and Lamar's victory was assured. His friend and supporter David Burnett ran for and was elected vice president. Lamar's term as president started off with a bang. As a courtesy, Lamar had agreed to let Houston give a farewell address at the inauguration. This was probably a mistake on his part, because Houston showed up in a green velvet colonial period suit, complete with powdered George Washington-style wig, and he delivered a three-hour speech full of insults and criticisms of both Lamar and Burnett, all while Lamar was forced to sit there listening. The performance so unnerved and infuriated the new president that he couldn't even speak. He gave his inaugural address to his aide to complete for him. His anger at Houston was so great that one of his first acts was to order a commission created to look at moving the capital from the city that bore Houston's name to a new location. This commission later recommended the tiny town of Waterloo on the banks of the Colorado River, right on the edge of Comancheria. The town was renamed Austin, and in October 1839, the government moved to a cluster of log cabins in this frontier village. As we said before, he couldn't get along with Houston. Lamar's policies were pretty much squarely the opposite of Sam Houston. He ended any discussion of annexation with the United States and pushed instead for recognition by other European powers, especially England and France. Now, he was actually quite successful at that, gaining recognition from those two powers, as well as from the Belgian government. He then sent three different commissions to Mexico in order to gain a final peace settlement that included the recognition of Texas independence. These were met with obvious hostility in Mexico and completely failed. Lamar was so irritated with the effort that he actually recognized the breakaway Mexican state of Yucatan and sent the small Texas Navy to help the revolutionaries there. He also failed to secure loans from these European powers to stabilize Texas finances. When the state ran out of money, he had the novel idea of, let's just print more money. Uh, these bills were known as redbacks for the color of the ink they used. Of course, this caused runaway inflation and only made the economic situation worse. But he was a great poet, so <laughs> he had that going for him. <laughs> Not mathematician. Well, Lamar also totally reversed Houston's policy of peaceful relations with the Indians of Texas. This was an area that Houston was actually out of sync with the majority of the population. Old prejudices and fears from back east were hard to let go, and most of the new arrivals in Texas simply saw the native tribes sitting on perfectly good land. Lamar reserved special hatred for Houston's friends, the Cherokee. War broke out with them in 1839, and the Cherokee were totally driven from Texas. Houston's close friend, Chief Bowles, was killed at the Battle of the Neches, further antagonizing Houston against Lamar. Now, Lamar was less successful with the Comanche. He enraged the various Comanche bands when Texas Rangers and soldiers, under his orders, violated a truce to arrest and kill several Comanche leaders at the Council House fight. This prompted the Great Raid to the Sea in 1840, 
when over 1,000 Comanche, Kiowa, and Arapaho raided all the way to the ocean from their territory in the north. Bitter conflict continued on the frontier for decades afterwards, and we actually did a really fun and interesting episode on that great raid of 1840. Uh, I suggest you go back in the archives and look at that, and we'll put a link in the show notes so you can find it easily. Mm-hmm. Lamar also continued to harbor dreams of expanding influence to all the lands claimed by Texas, and this included the New Mexico territories on the Rio Grande. He sought congressional approval for an armed trading expedition to Santa Fe, which was claimed by Texas, but remained a possession of Mexico. Houston and his supporters in Congress refused to vote funding for the expedition, but Lamar sent it anyway. It was a disaster of epic proportions that resulted in the loss of several hundred Texas soldiers and further diminished Lamar's prestige and popularity. By the end of his presidency, Lamar was the leader of a nation that was horribly in debt. His administration had run up a deficit of $3 million. It was in conflict with native tribes in Mexico, and it was politically fractured. His future in Texas politics was effectively over, as it was clear that Houston would run again for president, and he'd win. Now, Lamar retired to his plantation south of Houston in Richmond to devote himself to poetry and to continue his study of the early history of Texas. Just like us. Hmm. Sadly, his daughter Rebecca died in 1843, and he again sought to relieve his grief by traveling, and he returned to the United States. Still, Texas wasn't quite done with Lamar. After annexation, when war broke out between the United States and Mexico, he returned and joined the army as a volunteer. He again received a colonel's commission in the cavalry and fought under Zachary Taylor at the Battle of Monterey. After the war, Lamar served one term in the Texas legislature and again retired to write his history of Texas. He continued to travel, and in 1851, he married 23-year-old Henrietta Moffat in New Orleans. They had a daughter, Loretto, in 1853. In 1857, he was appointed for nearly two years as the U.S. ambassador to Nicaragua and Costa Rica, where his knowledge of Spanish and colonial history earned him respect and admiration. Shortly after returning from his post in 1859, Lamar died of a heart attack. He was buried at the Masonic Cemetery in Richmond, and today it's known as the Morton Cemetery, as it was founded on William Morton's land, one of Austin's old 300. Uh, Later, his wife and his daughter were buried next to him, as was the widow Jane Long, wife of the famous filibuster, who was his close friend and neighbor. On the surface, it seems that Lamar's vision for Texas and the actions of his administration were dismal failures. However, the one true bright spot that redeems the Lamar presidency, and it and truly gives him his most lasting legacy, is education. Lamar was a man who valued education and learning more than anything else, and he wanted these values to be at the very character of the future of Texas. To that end, he successfully pushed through legislation to set aside three leagues, or 17,000 acres of land, in each county to provide for public education. In addition, 50 leagues of public land were set aside as a land grant to support two state universities. Other legislation he got passed set up the structure of primary and secondary education in the nation, uh, which was the first in Texas. Though no schools were built during his term, a structure for state-provided education was established, and Lamar was, after his death, recognized as the father of education in Texas. In 1876, the first land-grant university, Texas A&M University, was founded, and in 1883, the University of Texas was established. Both of these schools were funded by the sale of public land set aside by Mirabeau Lamar. 
Today, a county and numerous streets are named after Lamar, but he probably would be most pleased that numerous schools, as well as a university and three state colleges in southeast Texas, are named after him. Perhaps his greatest honor is in the motto of the University of Texas, Disciplina Presidium Civitati. This motto is taken from one of his messages to the Texas Congress when he said, quote, The cultivated mind is the guardian genius of democracy, and while guided and controlled by virtue, the noblest attribute of man. It is the only dictator that free men acknowledge and the only security that free men desire. That's quite a quote. Yeah, he's an interesting guy, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's so easy to just put him in the bucket of, oh, he's an anti-Houstonite, and everything Sam Houston was for, he was against, and Sam Houston was usually right, so that makes Lamar a horrible guy. But in truth, he just had different ideas of, mm-hmm. you know, the direction the, the state and the, the republic should go. Yeah, well, and- I, I kind of feel when I read about Lamar, I mean, like, it's interesting, we start off and we we jump very quickly through, like, a lot of his backstory to get to his role in Texas, but you know, he had a lot of tragedy, a lot of a lot of just a, a lot of heartbreak in Georgia, and mm-hmm. you know, as you read about the man and you see like all the poetry he wrote, this kind of stuff, uh, you know, he was he was a, a an intro, introverted kind of a sensitive soul, you know, a bit of an artist, and I, I feel like uh, you know he he did achieve great things, but uh, you know, it, it was a very hard road for him. You feel kind of sorry for him. Yeah, and he had a vision, I think, that was in some ways bigger than he had, definitely bigger than the means that he had to accomplish it, that he wanted great things for Texas. And, you know, the, the thing that the thing that Texas had that was at hand that he was able to utilize was to set aside land because Texas had plenty of land. And that was a great accomplishment for him. That's really... That's really the the legacy that he should be remembered by more than that he was an opponent of Houston or that he spent money like it was water or made money like it was literally growing on trees. Um, but he 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 had a romantic vision for the state, I think that that set him apart from a lot of the people, and it actually puts more in line with like what we envision today for Texas. Yes, and also I think that the the thing that maybe is glossed over a little bit is um, the strength, valor, and bravery he showed in battle. You know, I think mm-hmm. we look at his political career and sort of some of the failures, and that's, you know, you're only as big as your last big hit, uh, as they say about, you know, uh, Hollywood and and yeah <laughs> bands and stuff. But, you know, he really did achieve quite a lot at a young age. And the fact to go from, you know, I'm a private on a horse who just showed up from Georgia and now, a month later, you're running the whole show. It's yeah. it's pretty crazy. Well, it's also yet another character in Texas history that back east was a planter, a a politician, a lawyer, and a journalist uh, in yep. newspaper. They they all seemed to like. There must have been a lot of newspapers <laughs> in the South in the 1820s and 30s because yeah. everybody was making their own newspaper. Yeah. Well, you also have to keep in mind that distribution was very, very local on most yeah. of that stuff. Yeah. So it was, I'm sure it was very common to have a newspaper in this town, a newspaper in that town. And yeah. Only, you know, the local people would ever see it. So, yeah. well, you know, I mean, I was always raised with the, you know, with the cult of Houston and, and that Lamar was like the opposite of that. And he was kind of a, kind of a failure in what he did. But one of the things that as we've been working on this show 
in doing some research, especially on the filibusters episode and on uh, some of the stuff from uh, the uh, the Republic of the North, uh, the McGee, uh, the Gutierrez McGee expedition, I would see little references to things that Lamar said or notes and citations citing to Lamar. And he never published his history of Texas, but his papers were, were passed down and they've become an important part of the early history of Texas is, is he did a lot of research into the early history of Texas, especially as the Anglos started to come into Texas. So that's really interesting, uh, interesting things that I've started to see about him and another kind of lesser known contribution that he's made to, to the history of Texas. Well, that's really cool. Well, I thought it was, uh, you know, it's one of those funny things, you know, I lived in uh, Richmond for two years, Richmond Rosenberg, south of Houston, and uh, that's where he had his plantation, and that's where he's actually buried on uh, in Morton, Morton Cemetery. It's one of those funny things because, all, you know, the two years I lived there, I, I knew that it was near there, but I never knew exactly how close, and, you know, you're busy in day-to-day things and you never make time. It's about 10 minutes from my house. <laughs> like... <laughs> Both Jane Long and Lamar Bird, like about 10 minutes from my house. There's also some interesting other people in that cemetery. Uh, it's a bit of a historical place. One thing, and I guess kind of what helps might help wrap this up um, the past couple episodes is, you know, we have Sam Houston, which is in, you know, he's very prominent. He's very much ingrained and synonymous with the, the Texas Republic in the early days. And he's kind of like, imagine that picture of the flower vase, right? When you see that flower vase front and center, that that's Sam Houston. But if you look at it, you start to really see the negative space around that that defines what that central image is. And you start to see those faces on either side of the vase. And that's kind of the anti-Houstonites. It's like they, they had their own contributions to the history of Texas that if they weren't there, then the prominence of Sam Houston would not be so great. So... All of those guys together contributed to the early history of our state, and it's really been interesting and fun to uh, to look at their individual contributions. Yeah, they're they're not they're not cartoon characters. They're not you know buffoons who Sam Houston was right and they were wrong. They they had like you said they had their own view and their own vision for what they really wanted to see out of Texas, and they were just as committed to Texas. And that's the one common thread that all of these men had with Sam Houston is that they loved Texas and they they were committed to to a future for Texas. There's room for there's room for all views here. It's funny when I close my eyes and think of Mirabel Lamar, I picture Chad Michael Murray in a jaunty hat. <laughs> <laughs> well, well the the producers of Texas Rising, I know you're listening to our show. Uh, if if you in the next step next season of Texas Rising, we challenge you the scene of Sam Houston Giving his farewell address at Lamar's inauguration, where you know I challenge you to put Bill Paxton in a velvet George Washington outfit with a with a powdered wig, and all will be forgiven, every bit of it. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We want to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstable.com and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. Why not follow us individually? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two ends. And I'm Scotticus. If you're a fan of the show and you want to support us financially, 
please visit our page at patreon.com slash texaspodcast. Now, you love the show. You love Texas. So do something about it right this minute. Tell your friends. Tell your enemies. Tell everyone you know. And please leave a review on iTunes because that really helps us out to find listeners just like you. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway. Thank you.